Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Did You Do Your Homework? The pop culture podcast that teaches you everything about anything and where we make doing your homework actually fun. My name is Martha Sullivan, teen librarian by day and super nerd by night and one of your lovely co-hosts. Helping me each week to discuss our homework, build the curriculum, and share next week's assignments are... Kaylee Scouten data analyst, and lover of all things obscure. And Pete Romberg, lead editor at a curriculum development company and uh, consumer of pop culture. Wonderful. How are you both doing tonight? Good. Doing pretty well. Good to hear. Before we get started, it's only fair that we share with you, our listener, our pop culture credentials. This is the part of the show where we tell you the last piece of media that we consumed, regardless of quality, prestige, or guilty pleasure factor. Pete, share with the class the last thing that you experienced. Uh, So just three hours ago, I got turned on to a band called The Staves. Uh, It's three British sisters. On their second album, uh, they got an assist from Bon Iver's Justin Vernon, and they sound incredible. Uh, If you like female singers, if you like people singing in harmony, if you like uh, Fleet Fox's sound or First Aid Kit's sound, you're definitely going to like The Staves, and I would highly recommend them. I've been listening to them basically nonstop for the last three hours. Are they on Spotify, or where are you listening to them? They are on Spotify, and they're on iTunes. And they might be on SoundCloud, for all I know. But basically, anywhere you get music. Hmm, Neat. Kaylee, what's the last thing you consumed? The last thing that I consumed, and this started on Tuesday when I first discovered it, was Monster Factory. I have been... Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I have been binge-watching the series on YouTube, and I... Cannot remember the last time I have laughed so hysterically at anything in my life. So, if you are, if you need a good laugh, I would highly suggest it. What is Monster Factory? Tell us a little bit about what it is exactly. Monster Factory is a YouTube series by two brothers called the McElroy Brothers. And what they do is they basically create the most hideous is not the right word because that's a little too harsh (laughs) but just the most like creatively different creatures for video games and then take those video games and let them experience the world that was built for them or the world that hacks have enhanced and so would this be something where they design just a horrific beast in a mod of say skyrim and then set it loose in that modded Skyrim world? Yes. Actually, I think the ones that I've seen, they mostly are working with the character creators that the game has already. Yes. Oh, so it'd be like, create your new character, and then they just give him the biggest eyes and the smallest mouth and the whatever, whatever, whatever. Yes, please watch the um, Saints Row episode. Because they do that, and then they give him long, flowing locks. And he looks surprisingly like the human version of the Beast at the end of Beauty and the Beast. Only horrifying. (laughs) Which one was the one that stands out to me the most? I think it's the one where... I'm trying to find it. They They make everything in the game... Oh, yes, Dark Souls, where everything was made of pizza. Yes, the McElroy brothers are a delight, and we should watch and experience everything that they choose to work on. Yes. Yep. 
so the last thing that I consumed is uh, an audiobook that I'm actually still in the middle of, still enjoying quite a bit, called The Rest of Us Just Live Here by Patrick Ness. Uh, this is a YA novel where the main characters in this book are the characters that would be the B, C, and D list characters in any other book. So it's basically the webcomic My Life is a Background Slytherin, only as a YA novel. Okay. So the beginning of every chapter opens with a couple sentences about what the like main characters are doing, and then the rest of the chapter is like our actual narrator and his friends. So you'll have the the chapter open with like in this chapter our heroine discovers that the immortals have broken through into our world and are planning to enslave us all uh while the son of the emperor like falls in love with her from afar and then the rest of the chapter is just our high school kids like dealing with having to go to prom and getting ready to graduate while all of this other like world ending shit is happening like two other people in their town it's amazing and i highly recommend it uh the audiobook is very well read um and just like completely charming a plus it, oh, th- this sounds a little bit like john scalzi's red shirts but then leaning even further into that idea it is a little bit um they are a little bit more genre savvy than the characters in red shirts like they'll they'll talk about that that episode with the vampires that happened a couple years ago mm. or you know they they know who the um like the main character quote unquote kids are and kind of talk about them as their own little clique and it's like all this exciting stuff is happening to them while we're here like dealing with the fallout cool that sounds great but yeah yeah so that is my that is my credential for the week shall we move into our theme and discussion topic for this week yeah let's shall okay so I picked identity as our theme to explore this week because I figure it's our first episode. We are establishing our podcast identity, um, and it seemed appropriate uh, for it to be the first theme that we kind of explore on the podcast. Uh, the way this is going to work um, for every other episode, and it's a little weird for the first one because you, our listener, may not have known what the homework for this week was going to be. Um, But every week, or every episode, rather, uh, we are going to explore a theme um, that we have all made each other read, watch, or listen to something on the theme. Um, My homework for this week was the Sense8 Holiday Special, which is also the first episode of Season 2, which is not something I understood when I assigned it. I I had been given to understand that it was more of a standalone thing than I think it ended up being. Um... But I am curious as to how you guys reacted to it, (laughs) since I think I made it out to be something that uh, someone new to Sense8 could experience more than it actually was. Well, so I had watched, I think, eight episodes of Sense8. I I stopped partway through episode seven or eight and never really picked it up again. Um... That would have been back when Sense8 first came out. So I was aware of these characters. I was aware of the uh, 
the gimmick of Sense8, which is that they are all uh, mentally connected to each other um, because of nonsense reasons, but they can inhabit each other's bodies, use each other's skills, and talk to each other. Um, so going in, I knew that, and I sort of knew their relationships a little. However, I didn't know who a lot of these bad guys were. I didn't know, obviously, where the storyline ended at the end of episode uh, of season one. Um, that being said, I liked this quite a bit. I came in expecting not to like it because I stopped watching. Uh, I, I stopped watching the show basically because while there were storylines I did enjoy, there were also a lot of storylines that I was just completely done with. Um, and this one, I guess by fast-forwarding a couple episodes, uh, sort of fixed a lot of those problems. Um, by the, <laughs> by the end, uh, um, who was it? Kala and Wolfgang, for example, their, their love arc, the whole Bollywood angle of Kala, Bollywood is not my thing. Um, so her storyline, I didn't care about at all. This episode, I liked a lot. I thought that her character was the only character who experienced serious personal growth in the episode, and I thought it was handled very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that uh, as a, a theme of identity, I don't think you could have picked a better show. Um, it's all about well, identity. That was, again, one of my... What, I have I had kind of micro and macro reasons for wanting identity to be our theme for this episode. Uh, the micro ones were I wanted to watch the Sunset Holiday special, and... <laughs> that's a fairly obvious theme that you can take from that show. Like it's about a lot of stuff. Um, but identity is definitely, definitely up there. Yeah. Uh, Kaylee, what did you think of it? Um, going into it, I had no idea what to expect because I somehow, I think missed this on my Netflix radar where it was just like, you suggested sense eight and I'm like, Oh, I don't think I've ever heard of that. And then I looked it up on Netflix. I'm like, oh, this actually sounds like a show that I would be interested in. So <laughs> jumping from No Sense8 to the second, the first episode of the second season was a little bit interesting. <laughs> it took me a little bit to like adjust because I was like, okay, like I think watching the intro of the show, you get a really good idea of what's going on. Like clearly these eight people share a psychic connection and they can like switch, kind of like switch in and out of each other's like worlds in a sense but still be in their own world and i guess i read somewhere that they sort of use mental telepathy to learn what each other's skill sets are and use those in an advantage um and i thought it was interesting as an identity theme that you had eight very very different people from very very different parts of the world sort of come together and create a coherent storyline where sort of the same, not the same exact things, but similar things are happening to these different people at almost the same time. Yeah. One of the things that I like about Sense8, um, I, I kind of feel like when you're talking about identity in terms of stories about identity, there are three broad categories that they fall into. You have, Stories about people who absolutely know who they are. You have stories about people who have no idea who they are. And then stories about people who are trying to figure out who they are. And Sense8 is interesting for me because I think that a lot of the discovery of identity happens before the show starts. Like you have, you have characters who you can tell at some point went through um, like that figuring themselves out 
period. I mean, Nomi is the the most obvious uh, character. And actually, I don't know if you got that in this, if you only watched this episode. Nomi is a trans woman. Okay. Um, but and, it, and it's played she, by a trans actor, which is pretty great, too. True. Um, but she has transitioned by the point when the show starts. So okay. presumably at some point she went through this whole figuring herself out decide like realizing who she is um but that's not the important part of her story so we have all of these people who pretty much know who they are and then suddenly have seven other people who are in their heads um and i think it's interesting kaylee i'm sorry i'm all over the place but sensei kind of does that yes um it's it's interesting, Kaylee, that you phrased the uh, the skill borrowing as borrowing, because the way that they film it, it's almost like they take each other's place. Yes. Like when um when Lido, the Mexican actor, needs to get into his apartment, it's not just that Wolfgang shows him how to break through the keypad. Wolfgang just steps in and does it for him. But then you see the occasional I... reaction shots from the other the, the non-sensates where you wolfgang isn't there so i think that that is more just right. like the nice the, the very cool visual um way to show you what's happening yeah which le- which leads me to sort of the central identity question of the show how much of like when leto when wolfgang is borrowing leto to break into his apartment is it wolfgang doing it or is it leto doing it while wolfgang is it Leto doing it using Wolfgang's skill? I think it's both. I think. I, think it was... I, 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 I mean, to me, this is a show about, like, in a way, the um, uh, the next stage of human evolution, where we're all sort of psychically connected to each other or whatever, we act as a collective instead of an individual. So I would say that the question of is it Wolfgang or is it Leto doesn't even matter because. Mm-hmm. the individual doing it is this sense eight group I've, they have a term for it they're they're clutch or something uh but like those eight individuals are the one doing it oh shoot what is the term is it, it cluster? cluster i want to say the cluster mm-hmm. yeah and then also going back to something else uh you you had said earlier martha i think that i i definitely agree that some of the sense eights some of this cluster have their um, you know, issues totally figured out by the time the first episode of the show begins. And more of them have have it figured out by the time this Christmas episode begins. Um, but what I thought was interesting was that I, I think there are still some, some people in the cluster who don't know who they are yet, who don't know what they want to do. Um, and Kala and Wolfgang, I think, are definitely part of that. Um, and so it's fascinating to see them talk to people who do know what they're doing, who do know what they want. Um, the, the conversation between Kala and Sun in the jail cell was, was great because it's like, here's someone who has no idea what she wants, talking to someone who knows exactly what she wants. Um, but I do think that the show asks you to make a distinction between who someone is and what someone wants. I don't necessarily think... Because I, I think that Kala is fairly comfortable with herself, which is why she is able to get so mad at um, Rajan at the very beginning when she finds out he had that conversation with her, her mom about her being a virgin. Mm-hmm. 
like she is comfortable with herself. It's that she doesn't really know what happens next, I guess. Okay. Hmm. I could see that. If if that if that distinction if that distinction makes sense or even matters. Like Wolfgang is another person who I see as being like he he knows who Wolfgang is. He just doesn't necessarily know how he fits into this world that has just kind of opened up and is now making him feel the need to be like a good person. <laughs> right, that, that that's a good point and I guess I was angling a lot more towards their actions and their responses to things rather than inherently who they are. Um mm-hmm. which is I guess definitely a distinction. Do we want to move on to the witch? I just have one more thing to add about Sense 8 in terms of what we were talking about with the um the knowing who you are. I think I think like Wolfgang and Kala know who they are and kind of maybe know what they want. They just don't know what comes next. So they they've gotten to this point where they're comfortable with their identities and they know like who they are, but they don't know how that transitions into the next phase of their life maybe. Theirs was always the most frustrating arc for me in the initial season because of like the constant I, I don't know, I hate will they won't they's. Um and and that's what their storyline is. It's funny because I feel like Kala would agree with you. I feel like Kala might think that she's stuck in a will they won't they, but her decision to marry Rajan despite everything she's been feeling about Wolfgang is her trying to break the will they won't they. It's her saying, "No, I'm doing this other thing." Like and this and... is what I have decided that I want to do. And this episode, I thought, did a really good job at, at pushing her more in that direction, like having important character development moments along those lines. Um, visually, mm-hmm. storyline, there was a lot of, of signposting exactly that. Yeah, I have a couple other things I want to say about Sensei, but they're things I want to say in the context of the other media we're going to talk about. So okay. what do we say we pass the baton to pete cool um i assigned the witch it was a horror movie came out um at the very beginning of 2016 very end of 2015 uh the premise of the witch is we are in puritan times uh a calvinist family is exiled from its new england colony uh because they are just too radical of calvinists um, they strike out into the woods by themselves to try to make a life for themselves, and, oops, the woods are full of, uh, scary witches, um, who, you know, bad things happen, it's a horror movie, um, I think we can spoil things like crazy because we assume you've done your homework, and so let's just say that nearly everyone dies except for the teenage daughter Thomason. However, that story, that arc of the narrative doesn't really do it justice um the way i like to describe it is there is literally a witch who you meet in the first five minutes there is also literally the devil himself who shows up at the end of the movie but at the end of the day the actual bad guys in this movie are mother nature and calvinism uh and maybe just being cooped up with your family for too long um the witches the bad guys in this movie the bad guys in this movie is literally every single character in this movie yeah, but specifically, it's every single character because they're all warped by Calvinism, and also Mother Nature is trying to kill them because turns out when you're trying to live in the woods in the 1600s by yourself, uh, any little tiny thing can be a disaster. 
Um, so that's sort of my, my broad arc. I liked, I liked this and I picked it for identity because of the importance that Calvinism and, and just religious mania had. Um, and I thought that in a lot of ways, um, this movie was sort of looking at a lot of things that we think of as positive identity uh, markers, things that tie us together, uh, family, um, religion, that sort of thing, um, and shows what happens when that all gets toxic. And, and the consequences of when you have unhealthy identifications or connections in those um, spectrum. Uh, so that it was my take on The Witch and why I chose it. Uh, Martha, what did you think on it? Um, to be perfectly frank, I did not care for this movie. Um, I would use the term, I would use the phrase horror movie to describe this only in elbow brushing. I, I sort of feel that if you're going to call something a horror movie, horrible things have to actually happen in the movie. Instead of just really screechy, ominous violins and then nothing happens. This is certainly more of a period <laughs> drama with a witch in it than a horror movie. Um, I did think it was interesting, going back to my, my three types of story thesis, um, Thomason is a character who has no idea who she is. She has been defined by other people for her entire life because of Calvinism and, you know, historical sexism. Um, but she spends the whole movie looking for other people to tell her who she is. Eventually, up until the point where she says, fine, if my family is dead, then the only person left to tell me to define me is the devil. So <laughs> this is my life now. <laughs> all right kaylee what'd you think i this? thought oh sorry Martha. Keep I going. Thought it, that's okay <laughs> i thought it was an interesting viewing experience um that i i was glad that i watched it and i'm equally glad i don't have to watch it again <laughs> uh, appreciated but didn't enjoy i did think it was beautiful yeah um and it fit with our, our theme very, very well. <laughs> That's my side note. I always love the, the behind-the-scenes stuff with movies. Um, and for this movie, uh, first off, it the script is written like a 16th-century tract, so it's all vows and, and shouts and withers and such. Um, I but... had to put the subtitles on. I was having <laughs> trouble. I was having trouble following it, just listening to it. Mm -hmm. Not that I couldn't hear it. I just reading it made it much more comprehensible to me it's very similar to shakespeare to me where where it takes a, a few minutes to get into the sound and then once you get like how they speak it sort of makes a little more sense um mm -hmm. but the other thing which i was going to bring up in terms of the beauty of it is that they shot it in the the north woods in canada uh they built the set which is literally just a house and some shacks using only period appropriate tools and techniques um, and they shot most of it using only natural light and candles. So, A, it's dark, it's bleak, it's very gray, uh, and it looks very, I assume, realistic because they tried their best to make it look that way. Interesting. I will say that I really appreciated the fact that it was, that it technically is the V-V-I-T-C-H and not the W-I-T-C-H. Is there a difference? I thought it was just a stylistic thing. I thought there was a difference and that might be completely pulling stuff out of my butt. Pete, help us. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's just the stylistic thing because back, 
back in the 1600s or whatever, maybe your printing press doesn't have a W, but it does have some Vs. So, yeah, we get a that's W. That's what now. I was thinking. The okay. fact that it's stylized in that way, instead of just being like, you know, your typical name, it was sort of stylized as if you were printing it back in those times because you would not have a W. Yes, that, that, that's exactly why they did it that way. Okay, that's a thing. Yeah, I just thought it was, this looks cool. Let's do it this way. Yeah, also that. <laughs> um, Kaylee, what do you think no, the of other, it? The other one's better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so other than just uh, typographically, Kaylee, what were your thoughts? Um, one thing that I thought was sort of cool with the movie um, was how the narrative and the story also helps create Thomason as a person. So... I feel like she is a character put into these really odd and terrible situations that kind of shape her along. Like when her two twin siblings start accusing her of being a witch, she's like, I'm not a witch. And then she's like, you know what, fine, I'm going to be a witch. And so that, in a sense, was kind of interesting where it wasn't like her shaping the narrative, but it was more the narrative shaping her. And I think that goes into what Martha was saying regarding the identity narrative storylines not necessarily always the character drives them, but sometimes they're about the character finding out who they are. I see, but I don't know that Thomason ever finds out who she is. I think that she just decides to be whatever somebody tells her to be. Right, and and as a result, she is shaped by the narrative as it works her along. I mean, she probably doesn't even know who she is, and she's like a witch that can fly on brooms. Uh, her life is so terrible. <laughs> Yeah, everyone's life is pretty terrible. <laughs> All right, well, any any other lasting thoughts or impressions <laughs> on The Witch before uh, we move along to uh, Kaylee's? Well, I think it's interesting, and I did not pull any of these up before we started recording, so unfortunately I don't have any direct sites, but I'd be happy to post some links um, to the blog when the episode goes live. Um, I feel like when this movie came out, there was a bunch of think pieces that got written about how it's a feminist narrative. Mm -hmm. It is not. It is not that thing. I, it is. I. I. Uh, Thomason. I, I don't. I do not see this as a narrative where she is like reclaiming her power or something by the end of the story. Like at the end of the story, she has nothing. She has nowhere to go. She has no home, no family. The people at the plantation are not going to take her in because, you know, they cast her family out in the first place. So her becoming a witch and signing the devil's book is not this like massive F you to the rest of the world. It's literally the only choice she has. It is the only choice she has, but it's also, I mean, like she could in theory go back to the plantation. There's a, an ongoing um, theme, I guess, throughout it where, like, they keep trying to send either her or someone else back, basically indenture the person out. Um, A, so that there's one fewer mouth to feed. B, they'd get some money off it. Um, so, like, she could still go back to the plantation and be like, uh, my whole family died in the woods. Somebody, I'll be someone's indentured servant to not die. Um, not a great life, but a possibility. I, I, I think that, like, the idea of it being, like, the feminist um, movie be, is because she's, like, throwing off the shackles of the old oppressive system by not going back to the plantation, by instead joining the witch's coven and being part of a new community of women in the woods, uh, not 
constrained by terrifying Calvinism, and instead constrained by the terrifying constrained devil Constrained by the devil. Yeah. <laughs> who is who is also a man. And a goat. <laughs> a male goat. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I see her last act in the movie not as one of liberation, but one of desperation. <laughs> I can see both sides of it. Like I, I think you're. I, I, I think that reading is entirely there, and yet I think you can also see the other reading, um, where it's a little more. I don't want to say upbeat, but at least a little more positive. I mean, it, again, the ending is she literally sells her soul to the devil, so it's only going to be so positive. But within that confine, uh, you know, just minor positivity. She's. Um, what was the line from the goat? Uh, being delicious or, or whatever. Enjoying delicious things. Uh, living you, would you living like deliciously. deliciously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although, again, those women are not... Those women are living in shacks in the woods and they have to kill babies to, like, satisfy... I don't know. He talks a good game. I don't... I don't see the devil as being one who delivers on his promises once he has you. No one's going to deny that uh, argument. (laughs) (laughs) But Kaylee. Yes. uh, Did we already do your thoughts on the witch? Have I gotten lost in my own little (laughs) cyclone of... (laughs) No, I think we covered... Concern? Yes. Okay, well then why don't you tell us what your homework for us was? Okay, so my homework was a film from 2007. It is actually Spanish. It is called The Orphanage, or El Orfanto. I probably butchered that. I apologize. Um, It is about a woman named Laura who starts a orphanage with her husband and their seven-year-old adopted son. And once they start the orphanage, I believe the orphanage is actually the old orphanage where she grew up because she was also adopted as a child. And she, you know, brings back this orphanage because she had, you know, memories of growing up and wanted to, you know, contribute and add back in. And at the opening of the, like the ceremonious opening of the orphanage, her son goes missing after a brief fight that they had regarding the fact that he's also adopted and he goes missing and they can't find him and start strange things start to happen. Laura goes a little, you know, um, try and, you know, go to any means necessary to bring him back alive. And over the course of the movie, you kind of, or at the end of the movie, you find out what happened to him. And yes. Spoilers for the orphanage. It's, you said it's 2006? Seven. 2007? I, I, I think we can spoil old. anything we did homework. We're like... spoiling everything. Um, so the little kid dies, and I felt super betrayed by that fact. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. I'm sorry. So why did you pick this one? I, I picked it because I felt like it was a really good piece to sort of show... You've got... The movie sort of revolves around... Laura and these events that are happening to her and it's sort of you kind of learn kind of a lot about her over the course of the movie and you you really feel like you have a good sense of who she is 
um, by the end of it and what her struggles are. That's fascinating because I I saw this movie in, uh, you know, maybe 2008 uh, on DVD. Had vague memories of watching it, um, but as I've told both of you, I was constantly confusing this with The Devil's Backbone, um, which is also a Spanish-language horror movie set in an orphanage um, by Guillermo del Toro. Um, I was going to say, I feel like we should point out that this movie was produced by Guillermo del Toro. Yes. Because I feel as though that explains a lot about it. Yeah. Um, what... It was actually. Yeah, it was go... actually not produced by Guillermo del Toro. He is friends with the person who produced it, who is. Um... Oh well, as you're thinking about this now, I feel betrayed. Why? Because <laughs> I thought this was del Toro production. No. <laughs> well, I think I think was um... the director one of his because I know that he frequently will support new directors and like help them get their stuff made. Yes. Okay. So he is related to this project. Yes. Okay. Cool. Um, what, what I was going to say was I'm really glad you assigned this for identity because, A, I barely remembered this movie. Um, so it, it felt mostly fresh when I was watching it. Um, but watching it with the lens of identity, I had a lot of notes about... Um, how much they're keeping from this kid and and how much everyone is like it's all lies and secrets all the way through um he's also seven he's so, also like, hiv like... positive which is like yeah, yeah, a he's... pretty big bombshell as a... but as a seven-year-old like he understands that he has a condition that he has to take medication for as a seven-year-old i feel like that's enough like i would not have understood what it meant to be hiv positive as a seven-year-old like i i don't I, I don't feel that they were unreasonable keeping the stuff that they did from him. I don't either. I just think it's a really fascinating choice for that to be the one, because while the seven-year-old doesn't, the audience does. Um, and it sort of shapes how you think about, or at least it shaped the way that I thought about it, um, uh, in, in terms of, you know, what the kid was going through, what, what the parents' interactions with him were like. Um... And then sort of cycling back to the past in the old orphanage when they were, like, literally... There was a line where it's like, oh yeah, these kids caused this other kid to die, but we didn't punish them, it was just kids being kids. And I was just flipping a table like, oh, great. Remind me to never have kids in Spain. (laughs) They do get punished. Well, but death by bullying is a thing that happens. Yeah. Like, suicide by bullying is... That's that's not really a, a Spanish no. phenomenon. Piece. No, no, no. I, I was saying that, like, what do you mean these kids weren't punished? They basically, like, you know. No, I understand. And it's a good point. But I also think that that's a thing that happens here, too. Sure. It, it was said in a very flippant way, which sort of made me feel that, like, you know, this is a sense of, like, you've got to be kidding me. And, and you did it, punished. Yeah, by, like, getting murdered and then cremated by a crazy old nurse lady. Yes. Yeah. Because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the kid who they killed was her son. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And I, there's something about creepy bags over people's heads. The the kid that they killed, who had a bag over his head the whole movie, uh, was deformed. And I gotta say, I was more spooked out by him with the bag over his head than him with just the Phantom yeah. of the Opera-looking face yes. going on. Yes. Agreed. 100%. So 
now that we have gotten to our third piece of homework, I think that it's really interesting that we all chose stories where one of the defining like identity themes is how we are defined by family. Hmm. Which I, I I think shows up very strongly in all three of them. Like in in the orphanage, obviously you have Laura who is very strongly motivated by the fact that she's a mother and that she loves her son. And, you know, in the end actually chooses to commit suicide so that she can be with her son and continue to be a mother rather than like trying to find an identity outside of that. Yeah. And then you have the witch where, you know, the, the family unit is the defining character unit for every single character in that movie. Um, I think is fair to say, like, as we, as we already kind of talked about, Thomason is defined at every turn by how the different people in her family see her. Um, and then particularly towards the end, by the time we get to Christmas in the Sunset Christmas special, when you get to see these characters interacting on their own with their own families, and then also how they've kind of turned their cluster group into a family, particularly for characters like Sun, whose family has doesn't mean the same thing to her anymore as as the other people in her group. Yeah. It made me um it made me kind of one of, one of the things that made me think about very strongly was um the new Miss Marvel with Kamala Khan and how mm. family is very definitive for her. Like she her family is Muslim and that's a very strong presence in her life um it's a very defining feature for her like she is a muslim her family's muslim they love her they support her and that matters uh in the development of her story i also side note think it's weird that three super nerds picked identity to talk about and then none of us assigned a superhero anything that's just be way too on the nose you know (laughs) (laughs) but i mean i i think it's worth talking about because you know, superhero stories are defined by the question of identity. Yeah. Um, specifically, I'm picking Miss Marvel to add to our civ- our syllabus. Um, in the first volume has right after she gains her powers, she has a little hallucination where um, the former Miss Marvel, Carol Danvers, appears to her um, to kind of give her the with great power comes great responsibility speech. And then for a short while, every time Kamala becomes Miss Marvel, she looks like Carol Danvers. She doesn't look like herself. Um, So her identity is even further split between Kamala and Miss Marvel. And then this other like blonde bombshell, uh, like completely Anglo Saxon looking woman that she has like idolized her whole time. And then a big, Uh, story factor moving into the comic is her becoming more at peace with herself in this role and you know no longer needing to take on the appearance of her idol when she uses her superpowers and and so that goes a little bit and and superhero comics are rife with this and both sensate and the orphanage i think dealt on it too which is the difference between um constructed family versus I don't know if you want to say natural family or like blood family. Um, Found family? Yeah, found family or constructed family. Um, Sensei is obviously 
of the three assignments big on this one. Um, another one I can think of in the world of graphic novels is one that I know, Martha, you're a fan of. Kaylee, I'm not sure if you've read it. Uh, the Wicked and the Divine. Um, I just... <laughs> uh, Kaylee, go ahead. Oh, I said I'm halfway through the first book. Okay, excellent. Uh, so no spoilers then for your sake. Um, but that is definitely a dysfunctional constructed family, which is interesting because I think often you'll find dysfunctional blood families, like in The Witch, and you'll find functional-ish constructed families, like in Sense8, um, but a, a specifically dysfunctional constructed family is, is sort of an interesting um, variant on that. Well, and The Wicked and the Divine is such a good one for identity because you have this cast of adolescents or like very post-adolescence who is already a period in your life where you're struggling to figure out who you are. And then suddenly they have this entire other identity thrust upon them. So it's like, not only am I a teenager, so I have to deal with puberty and high school and all the other stuff that I was dealing with, but now also you're telling me I'm the latest incarnation of this God. Like, how do I even deal with all of that um and i think the longer the wicked and the divine goes on the more you start to see how all of those things can crush a person like giving giving you all of these identity crises to deal with actually destroys people yeah. it's a pretty interesting it's a pretty interesting allegory i think actually for um like figuring out sexual identity because that's that's something that people who who go through that kind of deal with on top of everything else that normal people have to deal with and it's this big world altering thing um yeah I, I i don't know that the wicked and the divine was written as any kind of allegory but it wouldn't surprise me if it was yeah i i would say that in terms of uh identity narrative and um wh wh whether it be a a, a um a gender or an orientation type allegory, I, it, it works equally well as a very simple just allegory about power and, um, you know, what power does to people, because I think there's a lot of that conversation happening, too. Um, lots and lots of different ra ways to read that one. Not going to go too much further into it for Kaylee's sake. So, <laughs> so we'll <laughs> leave it at that. it's on the syllabus. <laughs> yeah, it's on the syllabus. Well, it is now. It is now. Oh. This is the part. This is the part of the podcast where we bring in other things for people to explore and check out that are also on theme. Gotcha. Which is why, which is why I also want to talk very briefly about a book called *The Lie Tree* by Francis Harding. Is that the sequel to *The Giving uh, Tree*? I assume. It is not. Um, it's actually one that I'm going to recommend very strongly to Pete in particular because. It reads almost like the witch if Thomason had been more of a self-possessed character. Hmm. Um, the main character in the lie tree is a girl called Faith, and she is the. It's set um, in the 1860s, I believe, basically right after Darwin published um, *The Origin of Species*. And her father is both a minister and an anthropologist natural well, natural historian i believe is the time period appropriate phrase so she and her family start the book by having to move to this island 
like in the middle of nowhere because her father has been basically exiled by the natural history community in New York City um, because they there's a rumor going around that he um, his last big find was fraudulent that he um, created uh, fake fossils and displayed them as being real. Was this during like the dinosaur wars and like the big fossil boom that gripped the nation? Yes. Okay, great. Yes. She actually, um, Faith talks about her memory of getting to go to that big dinosaur garden where they had like parties inside one of the dinosaur statues. Man, why don't we do that anymore? I don't know. In the crystal, it's like the crystal gardens in London had all of these huge dinosaur statues, which are now hilarious to look at, but were really cool because they were like the first constructions of um, dinosaurs to to be created. Um, but so it's about the the lie tree specifically is about Faith um, being completely devoted to her father. Like she herself is very inclined towards the scientific um, in a perfect world would love to be a natural historian herself but she's growing up in this environment that says women are dumber than men because their skulls are smaller so she is looking at you know a place in the world where she will only ever get to be a subservient role and then her father dies and throws her into uh this whole crisis of starting to find out that her father wasn't this like giant brilliant genius that she thought that he was and kind of what that means for her uh to have based her identity around him for so long and then to find out that that was all a lie um it's very good it's probably going to win a couple of ya awards for last year highly recommend oh so this just came out relatively yeah it was a 2000 yeah it was a 2016 book great but yeah, it definitely reminded me both time period wise and also um, familially wise. Uh, I was reading it when I watched, or I was in the middle of it when I watched The Witch. So it was kind of like, oh, these are very similar. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of connections being made. Mm -hmm. So another thing that I started watching uh at this point a couple weeks ago um and didn't get past the first episode of is the new netflix show the oa um i'm so glad we are talking about that because i need someone to tell me what it is yes, I, what is it i don't know I've, I've seen one episode and i'm not positive I've, I've read stuff about it it makes it sound whatever um it's a girl disappeared from like a suburban neighborhood years ago she was blind she suddenly reappears. Um, she was trying to jump off a bridge. She did. Um, they fish her out of the water. Her parents identify her. She doesn't recognize them at first um, because it turns out um, she was blind, but now she can see and stuff and mystery. Um, and so what happened to her in those intervening years? She was kidnapped or something. We don't know. Um, so aliens. She, it's going to be aliens, aliens and it's going to piss me off. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that, yeah, that A is either alien or angel. Um and stuff so she recruits a ragtag team of high school kids to do things she keeps trying to like have near-death experiences because when she had a near-death experience she like had a conversation with god or something she was also telling a story about how she was the daughter of a russian mobster which doesn't square with the current story that she's living in so it seems like there's a lot going on there seems like there's a lot with 
constructed identities, false identities, um, specifically, you know, if, if she's being brainwashed by some dude who kidnapped her or something, um, that'll be crazy. Um, there's a, uh, a really, really annoying jock with the heart of gold, but he's really not that heart of golded, um, in it, so he's sort of like, it, it's a lot of teenagers and, and, uh, high school kids grappling with their own identities. One of the people who joins her circle of, you know, ragamuffins whom she's telling the story to is a trans kid. One of them is a, like, 55-year-old teacher. Um, so you have a lot of different people all grappling with sort of who they are and what this strange person who had a strange experience happen to her can do for them. I don't know if it's any good. Like I said, I... <laughs> I, I watched the first episode. The first episode was long. It was like 70 minutes. And I wasn't really feeling it until the last 20. Um, and then it sort of clicked a little bit more. But I could also definitely see it being a show where after two or three more episodes, I'm just going to throw my hands up in the air and walk away from it. Yeah, I'm not going to I'm not gonna lie. Every time I hear more about this show, I am a little bit less inclined <laughs> to watch it. Yeah, um. it, it, But, on the other hand, it does sound perfectly on point for what we're talking about right now. First of all, I have to ask, do we know why it's called OA? No idea. Okay. I'm sure that will be revealed in time. Because it it bothers (laughs) me. Or or it might never be. Sure, also possible. I actually had thought of one that covers identity pretty well. It is a series on... Uh, Amazon Prime called Grace and Frankie and it sort of deals with how even when you're it's well actually it's about there's two couples very like polar opposites of each other and the husbands of each of these couples decide to divorce their wives so that they can get married and it's mm. sort of about how the the journey of these two separate couples where they sort of didn't like each other and now they have to learn to live with each other and get along because, well, not like, get, well, yeah, like get along, um, because of the situation that has come up in their relationships. And it's sort of interesting, sort of, from a perspective of even people who you think know what's going on and what, like, have their life together may not have their life together. And you're sort of, like, as a person, always growing and always evolving and your life can always take on these complete changes from what you thought was going to be forever and always. I'm sorry, Kaylee, did you say that show is on Amazon or is it on Netflix? Oh, I'm sorry. It's on Netflix. Okay. Just want to make sure that if people go looking for it, they know where to look. Yes. I, I was all excited, ready to tie it in with Transparent, which is also an Amazon show. Um, or I guess I shouldn't say also, which is instead an Amazon show. Um, I was going to say something about Amazon doing some awesome, bold storytelling, but I guess I can't say that. But no, the, you but still show can. Sounds great. Yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have not watched Transparent, but I exist on the internet, so I know what the premise is, and it's... I mean, it's it's different in detail, but kind of similar to Grace and Frankie in that it's about someone late in life, um, you know, com- coming to terms with an aspect of their identity that changes, that affects both their life and the lives of everyone around them. Yeah. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about Transparent, Pete, or leave it at that? I actually haven't seen it either. I'm merely also a denizen of the internet, so therefore oh. I'm aware of it. <laughs> well, then, just in case... Just in case we have people listening who are not, Transparent is an Amazon Prime show where Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Trans Tambor plays a trans woman who starts her transition late in life. So at this point, she has uh, children who have children, and it's all about all of them coming to terms and dealing with uh, her transition and general life upheaval. Does that sound fair? Sounds pretty fair to me, and and like you said, I think it sounds pretty similar to uh, uh, Grace and Frankie. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, In that same exact way of, like, A, how, like, major life events happening late in life after a family is established. So, B, how does this impact the family? Um, How does this shape everyone's, you know, sort of experiences? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that that is a lovely note to end on. And that's all the time we have for this week for Did You Do Your Homework? Pete, what is the topic for next week's episode? Um, The topic for next week's episode is resistance and insurgency, or as I like to say, welcome to the resistance. And your homework assignment for us and our listeners? All right. I am assigning the album uh, Heaven, H-E-A-V-N, so no E there at the end, uh, by the artist Jamila Woods. That's available on SoundCloud. If you just search Jamila Woods uh, there, you'll be able to listen to it for free. Uh, my homework assignment is a YA novel called The Summer Prince by Alaya Don Johnson, um, available at your local library or probably wherever books are sold. I believe you can buy it as an ebook on Amazon for 5 or $6. And Kaylee, what is your homework assignment for us for n- next time? Uh, my homework assignment is a graphic novel by, titled In Real Life, and it is by Corey Doctoro and illustrated by Jen Wang. Um, it is available through most major bookstores such as Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and runs for about like 10 bucks. All right, and we will be reconvening in two weeks, which gives you plenty of time to do your homework. Uh, As always, the topic and homework assignments can be found at our home base on the internet, which is homeworkpodcast.com. You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at D-Y-D-Y-H podcast. Uh, Additionally, if you simply cannot get enough of us, um, I can be found on the internet pretty much anywhere at Magical Martha. Uh, I can be found on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O, and then the numeral 3000. I can be found pretty much uh, anywhere on the internet as well um, by the Addy Tricky Lemon. Please feel free to get in contact with us at any of those places if you have ideas for show topics, feedback on our episodes, um, if you just want to say hi. Uh, our podcast is available on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, um, and anywhere oh, books shit. are sold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I believe the the blog has a complete list of all the places that you'll be able to download our podcast at. Feel free to rate us on iTunes, and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Class is dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>